Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books Networks in African uh, Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Professor John Jansen about his book, Health in a Fragile State, Science, Sorcery, and Spirit in Lower Congo, published by Wisconsin University Press in 2019. Professor Jansen is Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Kansas. Professor Jansen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we could begin uh, the interview uh, by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write um, this book. Well, I'm, I begin by saying that I am um, uh, Emeritus Professor, which means I'm no longer a junior. I've had uh, lots of experience and um, and um, and uh, so my 50 years as a uh, university professor and researcher has given me uh, uh, many chapters to look back on. Now, a more focused answer to the question pertaining to this book, uh, I went back to the region in um, Western Central Africa where I had done my uh, earliest uh, research. And uh, so in the 60s, um, from specifically from 64 to 66, and again in 1969, I did intensive um, field research in that uh, region the of the lower Congo, the Manianga region of the lower Congo, first for my dissertation and then um, as a postdoctoral uh, project that resulted in the, the book, The Quest for Therapy in Lower Zaire. Um, in the meantime, I did a number of um, projects and um, mainly having to do with health and healing, I became um, involved in research projects that tried to figure out uh, what generally was the um, African traditional approach to, um, to healing and how it relates to um, so-called modern medicine. And um, then um, in the course of things, 
I decided I really wanted to go back to this region where I had a deep knowledge and new people, and I wanted to figure out um, what had happened during the post-colonial period, that is the um, roughly um, 50 years of post-colonial um, Central Africa. And uh, so I obtained a um, Fulbright Senior Research Fellowship and um, made connections with uh, my acquaintances in the in the Congo region. And um, I went there and spent four months doing what anthropologists do, hanging out, listening to people, talking. Um, I had a proposal, but when I got there, um, as is also common for anthropologists, the proposals um, often don't seem to make sense once you get into um, the community and uh, things have changed and they're not exactly what um, you may think that you would be expecting. And in the case of the, of the lower Congo in the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly Zaire, in fact, um, I was entering a setting in which there had been what the political scientists and the um, and the policy um, uh, people call failed state situation, the collapse of the state. And, and so um, it took me a while to understand how that manifests itself. But in any event, um, I think I've explained uh, why I researched this project and that it's a follow-up study um, to see what has happened to um, health and healing in the post-colonial uh, uh, period from roughly 1960 or 1965 up to the um, second decade of the 21st century. Um, and, and you know, you, you presented that, um, you know, you talked in your introduction precisely about that uh, sort of intervening time, you know, that, that there was a, uh, there's a reference to how you found things after not having been there for a period of time. And, and to some extent, I, I was wondering as I was reading how that, uh, not just that gap, you know, the fact that you had not been to that region for some time, mm -hmm. uh, but what were the things uh, as you encounter them? And like you said, that in some ways you, you have a plan and then you hit the field and then all of a sudden um, you have to uh, rethink uh, what is it that you studied and how is it that you're going to explain it or your questions? Um, what were sort of like, what is the difference or how do you felt, uh, how did you feel your questions shifting or changing or your strategies shifting or changing uh, as you first uh, started the field work for this book? Well, one, one big difference. Um, so one, so, so my co contacts were, People I had had known, they were they were uh, Congolese um, uh, 
people, um, my official point of um, um, reference, my official counterpart um, individual was um, um, Mahanya Kimpianga, Jackson Mahanya, a historian who um, who um, was influential in establishing a regional university and a development uh, NGO and whom I had known um, back in the 60s and I had met him um, occasionally in between time and um, and um, and so he also was significant in setting me up, my wife and me up with um, um, connections for the for the research site. Another individual was a um, phar pharmacist um, and former uh, parliamentarian who um, whom I had encountered um, along the way as well. So I was going in as a um, senior peer to a number of um, Congolese people who had who were in influential positions. And so my general, um, shall we say, aura as an anthropologist this time was no longer that of a student, an American student who wants to learn our language and study our history, let's help him. It became now, you are Professor Jansen, and, uh, and people were asking me questions as an elder about the olden days. And they were often amused because my memory of my earlier fieldwork and my manner of speaking was like that of an old man in their community. So um, I benefited from being a known professor who had studied their society and was now an elder. The other thing was that um, in the 50 years <clears throat> since I did my original work, many people now knew what anthropology was. In fact, they knew my work. And, and so um, this meant in a lecture that, I, that, that people would ask me about my anthropological research. I gave a lecture about my work to the university in Lawozi, in the town that I uh, was living in. And one of the professors asked me, Professor Jansen, this is all very interesting, but what's your research hypothesis and, and have you found it proven or disproven? So, <laughs> so um, you know, it was total, a very different, um, shall we say setting and and the reception was was uh well toward me as a as a um senior um, individual and i might say in the african setting elders are generally revered and so i was getting um shall we say recognition because of my age and um and I don't think in the United States I would necessarily be 
esteemed because of my age. Yeah, maybe. very different words. I don't know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a short answer. And, um, and um, but I, many of the people, I, I did meet people that I had known back then. And I describe a few of these encounters in the book. And they were always very moving. And, um, and, and uh, some of them were planned, some were, by accident, that is, they were total surprises, and uh, and uh, the first reaction was always, "Mr. Jansen, you're you're old," <laughs> and my re- response would be, "Well, so are you," <laughs> and <laughs> then we would sort of take it from there. Yeah, I know. Um, I-, I was wondering also. Uh, how, I mean, like you said, you had worked on, um, on the questions of, of health and uh, healing in this region previously. And, uh, and in the intervening time, you had worked on the sort of like this interface between traditional healing and, and, and science or medicine. Um, at what point uh, or how much work had you done before in terms of uh, like the more formal institutions, you know, or when does it start, did it start to dawn upon you uh, the importance of institutions and in particular, like you, like the concept that you obviously introduce in this book uh, is the notion of legitimacy. You know, when it started to dawn upon you that these institutions were vital uh, for, well, uh, like you said, the reproduction, the social reproduction of health and, and that it was important that they were seen as legitimate. So when I, when I uh, began to talk to people, uh, I, I, um, I would, I would um, you know, uh, I, I had a list of the kinds of people I wanted to talk to. They were um, medical doctors. They were um, people who were in training um, institutes. Um, And also, I was was interested in um, healers, but that was not my primary, um, primary focus, like at an earlier time. But what I perceived or what I what I uh, felt was that the combination of institutions didn't make sense to me and um, and previously there had been <clears throat> a, <clears throat> um, a dominant Ministry of Health National Ministry of Health and there were um, state, Protestant, Catholic, and independent um, um, clinics and, and hospitals, mostly run by um, Europeans. Now, everything was, was being handled by uh, Congolese. And, but the... Um, the uh, the the status of these institutions that I had known previously was was now different, 
the Ministry of Health was virtually um, invisible. And um, at the same time, the, um, the health zones, that is the, the primary health care network of um, public health, um, um, public health uh, agencies, was now considered to be the the umbrella organization. There had been a restructuring of the whole um, healthcare uh, system back in the 80s and 90s when the World Health Organization launched Health for All by the year 2000. They, in in many countries of the world, they created a hierarchy of of um, of um, local um, health posts, health centers, and then referral hospitals. And I, I knew this structure uh, in theory, but when I when I saw what what had happened in the in the in the Congo, I I tried to imagine how did we get from point A back in the in the sixties to point B or C, and how, how did the transition take place? And what didn't make sense to me was that uh, the um, previous, previous uh, hospitals and clinics run by uh, missions and churches had now been uh, consolidated into health zones in which there was always one referral hospital, maybe several uh, middle-level health centers, and then a bunch of local health posts. But um, these zones were administered by, um, by a variety of, of agencies. In, in the case that I was studying, it was a uh, Protestant church medical um, agency that had been created in, I think, 1993. And the Catholics had a comparable um, entity. And in neighboring health zones, there were state-run agencies. So the, so the whole um, formal institutional framework was different but then what struck me was the uh, real absence of state, um, um, so we'll say, services and resources. And when I checked into the state posts and looked at the local government entities, I saw that um, most of the of the officials in state offices were doing what has become very common in the Congo and other countries experiencing financial crises. They're off doing um, other business. They're in private business on the side. And so um, the offices and the officials had not disappeared, but they um, were barely paid anything, if at all. 
and they were not in their offices very often. And, and so the uh, emergence of this new constellation of institutions um, alongside a, um, well, what, what scholars call a shadow state um, was simply a challenge to put together and to figure out. And so when I uh, finished my four months, I mean, I, I had written a number of essays to myself on trying to figure things out, how, how I would present this. And, and, um, and when I got back home, I gave a lecture to my department in which I proposed four, four or five possible topics for, um, let's say, putting this material into a book or article form. And, and the one that uh, intrigued me most, in a sense, was this whole question of how are these, this new constellation of institutions, these new institutions, how do they maintain or how do they achieve some sense of legitimacy um, and or let's say some sense of um, enduring sort of power so that they're not just you know um, like like temporary or short-lived or or weak and so on and so I became really intrigued with legitimation theory in the social sciences, and I read a lot, and and I spent um, a very exciting um, several months at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Germany in 2014, and. Their library had a lot of good work on legitimation theory, so um, I began to uh, apply some of these um, ideas for legitimation um, to the material that I had collected uh, back in 2013, and that's what comes out in the in, in the book. Now, I might say that um, I didn't think that a work on legitimation theory, while it might be interesting to theoreticians, probably would not be a good sort of cover a title for a book on health in Africa. And so I struggled with how to pitch this. Um, and there's quite a bit of autobiographical material in this book too, especially the introduction, because, because uh, you know I'm I'm doing a, a sort of a follow up to my earlier research, and and so um, I I worked hard at uh, figuring out how to present the material in such a such a way that it would not be sort of overcharged with theory, would have plenty of good ethnography, would actually clarify what had happened and, uh, and 
what it's like to live in a failed state or let's say a failed state trying to come back to some degree of less failure. Um, so that that's my short, short, maybe too long answer to your question. No, no, no. It, and, and it's in, in a way, uh, it, uh, it reflects uh, uh, quite well in, in sort of like what, what we can see in the book uh, as you both trying to uh, sort of lead us uh, through a series of um, almost discoveries and, and realizations in, in, in the data that you collected uh, and that it's presented in the earlier chapters. And, and then at the end, sort of realizing that there, there's something even though these these institutions are there and um, are serving uh, the, the, this population to some extent, there's still there's uh, still there's still fragility, like you 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 use that word. You know, there's still a fragility, and where that fragility comes from uh, has to do precisely with the fact that the, n- neither one of uh, of of these institutions. Uh, yeah. achieves uh, full mm-hmm. legitimacy in the way that maybe uh, a, the state might have done at one point or another. Uh, and so I felt like that was a very uh, a very good way of leading the reader to, to that um, to that uh, late discussion. Um, at the beginning of the book, you start with um, what you call a baseline, trying to set up a baseline. Uh, in the first two chapters, you talk about population decline and rise. And then the population, uh, the post-colonial uh, uh, sort of picture of population in terms of very specific diseases, um, and it was very interesting to see uh, how, in a way, you were both telling us these numbers are important, population numbers are important, and 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 sort of statistics with respect to specific diseases are important, but they're just a baseline. They don't tell us the whole story. The, the story of health uh, needs to have a little bit extra, but. Uh, in what ways uh, did you feel that that baseline was necessary? Uh, what did you think that it was helping you tell in the book? And uh, and uh, you know, and how did you try to go past it? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I have. Um, so I I've, I've taught taught medical anthropology um, for several decades, and I developed a textbook. Um, on medical anthropology, and I have advised um, graduate students in this area. And um, in understanding um, health or well-being in a society, um, one sort of obvious uh, point of reference is birth rates, death rates, uh, various uh, uh, cohort groups, and um, and then um, population growth or population uh, decline and and so um, I felt I needed to um, plug in that perspective here to make sense of um, the whole um, region and and Lower Congo um, is is a rather uh, in in the history of colonial pre-colonial um, uh, story of of Western coastal Africa, you've got you've got these horrendous um, uh, sort of eras 
that begin with uh, several centuries of the slave trade. And, and uh, this region was a, a conduit for the, for the slave trade. Then immediately after that, you've got the Congo Free State and the construction of railroads and and horrendous uh, sort of population decimation. And so uh, this this experience lives on in in the memory of people, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes to some sometimes consciously. And then now you have um, sort of a totally different situation with the World Health Organization kind of calling the agendas and, and, and maternal and child health is really the, the driver of policies and interventions. And, uh, and so there's this, this kind of a, kind of a, well, I don't know, kind of, kind of a all across the, the board type of um, demographic manifestation of um, life situations of the economy and of of um, of changing changing times, and I felt I needed to get a get a grip on that in order as as a backdrop for any discussion of institutions and efforts and um, and and uh, you know changes in the past few years. So I initially I wanted to make this a more of a historical book and by the time I got around to focusing on institutional legitimacy um, I had already put together the historical material and so I <laughs> thought let's just include it and and do the whole the part one of the book of uh, chapters one and two I think you know, sketches the pre-colonial and the the and colonial history in chapter one, and then in chapter two, um, post-colonial uh, trends. So, but uh, you mentioned baseline, and as the reader, I mean, as you will, as you realize, the data um, become less and less accurate as you go back and you have to sort of do some fanciful analysis and then at some point you take that and then you basically conjecture back into the into the period that you know where there is no no data at all or very little data and and um i i i have not yet um seen any reviews by let's say population historians i i'm i'm sure somewhere there's a scholar who will say you didn't consult such and such a source um but it is what it is now and and uh the the period um during the the congo free state where um, infrastructure developments were being made, like the railroads, 
um, and labor was being forced to participate in these construction projects. That's where you had real sort of disappearance of clans, entire communities. And, um, and so the, let's say the most terrible period of all may not have been the slave trade, but the, the, the Congo Free State period, King Leopold's uh, period, and Henry Stanley. Henry Stanley um, was a was a prominent figure in that in that in that you know period from 1887 through um, into 1908. I mean, I, I felt that that those two chapters were particularly effective in um, setting up uh, some of the some of the questions in in the future parts. Uh, for instance, in terms of uh, how much can we trust uh, what, for instance, the colonial uh, authorities were telling us about population declines or not? Uh, it, again, in, in terms of if we, if we need good, uh, if we want good outcomes, uh, we, we need good data. And sometimes even these institutions might not be trustworthy to provide that data. Uh, in, in other words, that, that institutions matter not just in terms of um, delivering uh, certain uh, services, but also in terms of allowing, uh, allowing us to sort of know what's happening. Um, and, and in relationship to that, I also felt that uh, it, the, these two chapters were very effective. And uh, like you said, in, in showing us uh, this sort of wider understandings, uh, what might have affected a, a wider understanding of health uh, in this area? I mean, the, that these notions of health, not as just the health of the individual, but the health of the individual being uh, very closely connected to the health of the society at large. Uh, was something that was already very, uh, uh, very present uh, or part of the culture in, of, of the this, this society. Uh, and that was obviously quite uh, traumatized as a result of these experiences uh, during the colonial and pre-colonial periods. Well, uh, and go ahead. The, um, so one of, one of the, uh, the key, so, so the colonial um, archives, that is, not this Congo Free State, but the Belgian um, colonial archives. Um, they keep records. Their, their, their records are basically oriented toward um, identifying adult male labor and uh, a steady flow of adult male labor. So they have this category from from the 30s, maybe the 20s, 30s on, um, adult and, and from 15 to 45. And that's the labor unit that uh, they're interested in. Now, in order to have a steady supply of labor, you need to have women who are healthy enough to reproduce and you know to raise children and and so they keep track of women and children and generally for up until into the 50s the um into the 50s it is it is 
their policy is to promote women and children in villages. And the men are expected to either work from home or to go somewhere else to, um, to work in projects away from home. And, and so this, um, this dic dictate, this policy dictates record keeping and it dictates a whole lot of other things. And um, this, so, so as the, into the 50s and 60s, the records are really very, very good. And the, um, and uh, I had access to colonial records and I had access to the, access to the early, well, I had access to the, to the post-colonial records and the, the colonial method of maintaining records was extended into the post-colonial period for a few years, but eventually, oh, the other the other feature of this colonial Belgian colonial record-keeping policy was um, to assume that everybody has a home village, and that's where they that's where they are are um, they are uh, recorded, but. Um, they, in a sense, keep a double policy, double record, double uh, population records, because they they keep track of who's at home and who's away from home. But in about 1965, 67, the um, the African um, personnel decide that. There's way too much work here in record keeping, and they will henceforth begin to keep records only in terms of who is at a given place at a given time. So it's it's a switch in in um, in record keeping in population records that uh, also reflects a much more open policy toward toward labor and um, more migration. And um, so, uh, but the the colonial record keeping reflects the policy uh, on labor and forced or heavy heavy handed voluntary labor or forced labor uh, on the uh, fifteen to forty five year old male. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i understand no and and, and it was um, like i said these these two chapters were very effective in sort of presenting both um 
the limitations and, and the advantages of, 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 these, of these sources. Uh, and, and like you said, uh, giving us a, a good starting point. Um, the second part, I, uh, I felt that it was also uh, sort of moving us from that sort of more general overview of uh, what we could read as health uh, or well-being in, in the society. It moves us to the specific sites uh, or like the more granular places where we can uh, try to measure uh, what it meant to be healthy um, in this community. So you talk about the social reproduction of health in, yeah. in part two. Um, and you start with households, families, uh, and then from there you move to institutions and finally end with uh, uh, these very interesting interviews that you conducted about uh, what people felt uh, meant to be healthy personally. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you learned in the process of doing how, how do you put together um, these three chapters? The what? The uh, intensive sample? Yes. Yeah, yeah well, uh, after a little while, I mean, after a few weeks, maybe after a month, I, I became very frustrated with different sources of uh, information, and I decided I need to do what anthropologists often do. They create their own sample. And so, um, yeah, this intensive sample. And I um, found um, a few people who helped administer it, and um, I did a few interviews myself, and I participated in some of the interviews. And uh, but um, it generated really helpful information, and um, and so that chapter on um, what is health um, provided me with uh, a really good insight into how people think about these issues. And the um, case study I developed of a household, well, of, of resources that go into health and health care, um, I, I use the combination of a case study with um, um, sample material, and I could um, reconstruct roughly um, how far people's incomes reach in in um, in paying for um, the health care that they that they need and want um, it turns out that these new institutions that is the clinics and the hospitals have to really squeeze their 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 budgets and so basically um, you have, you have, I mean, the reader ought to come away from this book realizing that there's a lot of good health care available, but people can't afford it. A lot of people can't afford it. And there's no health insurance. And um, many people are really living from week to week. And, um, and so, um, you have in the Congo what we now, we call a neoliberal economy where everything is bought and sold at global prices. 
and people are trying to, you know, work as best they can to figure out how to afford these these um, these uh, services. And and so um, the the case study presented in the chap one of the chapters on the social reproduction of health shows that 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 family has it has it together, but they are. If, if they would have had one more emergency, they couldn't have paid for it. One more medical emergency, you know, one more serious bout with malaria or, um, you know, somebody suffering a heart attack or something or a difficult pregnancy. They, they have no, no means to, to, to pay for that. Would have had no, no, no extra uh, uh, resources. So, um, so the um, getting getting the anthropologist dilemma is is how how do you use the information available to you to reconstruct um, a a general picture that is somewhat representative, and um, and so I used my case studies. I used the intensive sample, I use the records of the health zone. Um, and, uh, you know, basically, I use the government, government records, I managed to create connections to the office in Lawozi, the territorial office, and they finally lent me their uh, a decade of annual reports which is pretty amazing. And I spent several days copying information out of those annual reports. Um, you know, you, <laughs> you do what you have to do and try not to break the law when you go after material. Oh, no, no, but, but I mean, in a way it is a very, um, like I said, there's this feeling as you're reading the book that you understood that there was more to health. Uh, there was more to health than simply feeling well, and that uh, that there was a way there there was a need to try to figure out ways of articulating that and figure out what that what that extra was. And at the end of the of those three chapters, uh, one can see this. And uh, on, on the one hand, like you said, this sort of rebirth of some kind of institutional framework for the delivery of healthcare, but yeah. that in a way it's still very fragile because it's inaccessible for a very large amount of the population. Yeah. Um, so right. that even though it exists, uh, it's still not, it's still not making people healthy or at least not the vast majority of the people who could um, use it. And, and, and then there's that, um, in that last chapter, when you talk about uh, the popular meanings of health, uh, the, the understanding that, again, in this society, health is not merely, uh, it's, it's not just about me or how I feel today, but it's about the society at large. And in as much that there is a, a sense of a failed state or a sense of like, or, uh, of the precarity of life, uh, there can be that restitution of a feeling or a, sens a sensation of health. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so once you establish that, uh, you, you again, you move into the deeper level of uh, the problem of legitimacy. 
and you start that 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 uh, that section with this really interesting examination of uh, Dumuna, uh, this uh, ceremony uh, that you use to exemplify uh, some of the so traditional or local ways, or how this 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 particular ceremony has been used to recreate a sense of authority or legitimacy uh, among the peoples of this region. Could you tell us a little bit about this ceremony? Well, um, so um, one of my um, readers of the manuscript um, was really pleased that I um, put side by side the um, scholarly literature on legitimation with the um, Congo African um, understanding of these things. And, and um, so this chapter, chapter six, Dumina, um, looks at both the, um, the um, Western scholarship on um, social legitimation with the um, Congo African um, uh, parallel. And um, in fact, there's quite a bit of sort of um, similarity to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, this is important because I want this to be uh, well-received within the scholarly community, anthropology, uh, political science, sociology, African studies, and so on, um, social health, as well as um, recognized from within the within the community, and um, and uh, I go back to well, I go back to. Well, this touchstone ritual of Dumuna, which is um, is kind of esoteric nowadays, but as I um, research uh, ways in which um, authority uh, and relationships, society was set up and um, and made proper and and corrected this Dumuna ritual seems to be a a kind of signal of putting things right. And um, so I identify examples within chiefship, within um, alliances between families, um, within healers um, work in, in, um, in sicknesses um, and then the whole area of traditional knowledge around the um, sacred and kisi. And then finally in, um, in church rituals where this uh, ritual Dumina has been incorporated into um, some of the independent churches. But what I'm, what I'm looking for is, is a, um, an illustration of how power is made, um, power and coordination of authority are made uh, uh, legitimate or respectable. And, and uh, 
this Mr. This this um, contact of mine, whom I feature here, Mr. Kusikila, um, is a brilliant um, practitioner of power in a relatively modest setting of the of the local um, um, commune. I I met him in the in the sixties. He helped me set up my research in the sixties. And I was able to visit him again now. And um, so he's one of these uh, figures that, that, I, um, that I hold up as a great, great contact of person. Anyway, he shows the way that um, what, what happens to power if it is not legitimated. And, and um, we're dealing here with a, a tradition of, well, call it sorcery, call it witchcraft, whatever, but it is nothing other than the, um, the exercise of power and influence outside of a um, recognized civil society. It is selfishness on the part of individuals. It is, um, it is corruption in a government setting. It is um, fright using fear tactics. It is um, militias forming outside of, of government and, and politics. Um, and so the, the way in which power is institutionalized is really important here to understand the legitimacy of these fledgling Sort of new arrangements that that um, that health and healthcare are are couched in, and so um, I um, it takes a lot for me to piece this all together. But essentially, legitimation theory, scholarly Western scholarly legitimation theory, and um, Congo African ideas of of power. Um, are all helpful in understanding um, how you get, so what you should avoid or how you get to a, an institution that has the respect of everyone and is going to be efficacious in what it's trying to do. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's um, I mean, and, and that's in a way how you continue to, uh, continue to try to ask that question in, in, the, in the following chapter when we talk about specifically science uh, and sorcery and how there has been also that, um, that attempt to sort of take uh, like local ideas uh, uh, and, uh, and, and ideas from science as, as sources of authority to try to legitimize the different ways in which people seek healing or, or seek better health. Um, and again, in, in, that, in those instances, you use some examples of, of medical doctors who at the same time are uh, uh, skilled in, in, in so local healing practices. Um, so in, in a way, you, 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 I agree with, with the reviewer. You, you do a very good job in, in, in sort of showing how these uh, how sources of authority and legitimation are not just uh, sort of externally imposed, but uh, very much in internally constructed and negotiated. 
um, and, and then you, you end uh, you end the, the chapter with um, disease control, sort of going back to kind of like the, the beginning when you talked about, and and, and 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 just in case we haven't realized how complex this web was, uh, <laughs> you, you talk about how even in, in, with individual diseases, uh, this, there's uh, in other words, legitimation is not just like achieved and done, uh, but it has a different flavor depending on the disease and, and, and sort of like the ailment. Uh, can you tell us about that part? Uh, it must have been, uh, as you were approaching that section, I'm thinking you were thinking uh, that well, this is more complicated than every, any, this, anybody ever thought. This chapter, this final chapter was the most difficult to write because I frankly did not quite know where I was going to come out with this project and but then i i felt i needed to produce this chapter because you know people could ask well so what you've told us all about legitimacy and you and you've identified these new constellations and so forth but but sort of what what's the point and um and the point is that um that that let's say specific institutions are very integral at doing specific things that enhance health and i did not know this until i did not know until i you know looked at my material and looked around and thought about it and tried to connect the dots that local government maintains um um sewage treatment that's there's there's no if or but about it and and the mayor of luozi told me all about annual inspections of pit latrines and i thought okay that's that's good um but then i began to think well this is what keeps us from having all these terrible diseases and his the role of the local mayors and chiefs at enforcing people's you know um, use of pit latrines is a significant layer of of disease avoidance and um, and then you look at water and um, here the is somewhat similar but um, but um, then you ask, well, where do you get your water from? And um, and then people say, well, we have a cemented in spring, or we have, um, you know, we go to the river. But um, are you again, um, this there has been a lot of uh, local government activity involved in maintaining these cleaned up springs and sources of water and everybody knows that polluted water is going to cause diarrhea dysentery um typhus uh, typhoid fever and and whatnot and and so um one of the biggest sources of complaints um in that section is those people who don't have clean water and then you then i i i really had a, a fortunate encounter with someone who could tell me how the water system of the city of Lawozi 
actually happened, the, the political constellation that was required to make it happen. And, and the whole business of the crocodiles. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it, the, 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 the way this all came together um, is fascinating because it took the fear of the crocodiles and it took the elite of the region. It took particular people in parliament to allocate the funds. And um, then it took the uh, parasitical organization to actually come and do the surveying and find the source of clean water and then to actually create the, um, the facility. So um, the analysis of institutional legitimacy and viability in relation to um, health services and infrastructure services, I think, I mean, it, it, it's, it's critical. And if you don't have this kind of analysis, um, it's, it's hard to understand why things happen the way they do. Yeah, I agree. And, and in a way that, that just literally has, has answered my last question, which is, you know, uh, the importance of, of this kind of analysis. Uh, particularly in relationship to uh, to something as health, you know, something mm -hmm. that in a way mm -hmm. uh, people may have ideas about what it is and how it, it works, but uh, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it's it not something that individual people can achieve by themselves. It really takes that's a village. That's true. That's very true. There are things individuals can do, but, you know, um, <clears throat> um, the... Um, the uh, dependence on so so the the dependence on outside um, resources here is is interesting because um, you know the the campaign for polio the campaign um, the intervention um, against sleeping sickness at one point. Um, these all came from the outside, and these links to to um, outside NGOs, the World Health Organization, vitamin A for children, and so on. That's all very well and good, but unless you, but you know, if the, if the chain is disrupted tomorrow, that will stop, and and so there has to be something local and regional in place to make it work and um i yes as i uh, was uh, as i was sitting here this past year um in semi-isolation because of covid and i was um watching the way the united states was handling the reaction to the pandemic i kept thinking this is so congolese <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I began, I began to see, you know, even, even sort of offices here, my local county commissioners who would not uh, endorse the governor's mandate for masking. And I had to think back at the, at the nativist militia in the Manianga that would were refusing to accept any children's medicines from outside 
because it was foreign. And, you know, um, I, <laughs> so um, anyway, um, I, uh, I keep thinking, yeah, maybe this is a pretty neat book, uh, but um, I'm glad you were interested in it and glad you're, um, we've reached an hour, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but before we, we finish, I just wanted to, to tell you that I had very much the same thoughts, not, not because I've been visiting Congo, but uh, precisely because of uh, the way uh, communication and, and uh, policies have been made, I kept thinking this is this book, uh, talking about the importance of legitimacy, of our, the legitimacy of our institutions to, uh, to enable people to reach good health. Uh, it, it couldn't be more uh, more relevant at this moment. I, I'm not sh- sure that it's just a, a problem that the United States has had, but it's, it's definitely something that would be relevant for a lot of uh, public health officials uh, throughout the world. Um, so what are you engaged on these days? What is next for you? Well, um, partly because of my, my return visit um, back uh, in a while ago, um, I have um, <clears throat> contacts that are asking me for my material from back when I lived in their in their village in their community. Um, I have a, a contact who's now living in Spain, who was a twelve-year-old um, boy when I did my earliest uh, dissertation research. And, um, and he, 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 uh, shares anything he can get from me by way of original material, field notes and so on. Um, he shares it with his friends and acquaintances. And, um, so believe it or not, I am right now indexing my field notes. Hmm. (laughs) Well, about 50 years too late, but, um, (laughs) But um, that's one one project. So I'm trying to work with my um, field material and to make it a bit more presentable. Um, I am also um, doing occasional chapters for um, edited volumes. Um, there's a volume um, coming together about hospital ethnography. And I have a chapter in that in which I compare a um, my lower Congo material with what I saw in in uh, Uganda in um, in 2014. I did a short course in Uganda, northern Uganda, within part of a um, Austrian Ugandan um, academic um, exchange. I participated in in a two-week course on medical anthropology at the University of Gulu and in northern Uganda, and I um, picked up some really interesting material on on um, pandemics or epidemic outbreaks in Uganda, specifically an Ebola outbreak in the hospital in in um in uh, northern uganda in gulu in um 2000 <clears throat> and um 
and the contrast between a, a heavily centralized state and the Congo is is really intriguing, and so I do a contrast between um, a a shadowy state versus a um, a state that where the central government has its fingers in everything and is running everything, and to to, to see you know try to compare and contrast these these two situations. So I so I do occasional. Um, special um, articles or chapters, but my main main focus at this point is getting my own material together and maybe uh, working at a um, more thorough, more systematic presentation of some of my my um, social um, material from Lower Congo and. Uh, We'll see. I keep busy. Well, that's good. It's very good to hear. Um, well, we uh, I enjoyed very much reading the book, and I'm sure our listeners will do so too. And we thank you very, very much for speaking to us today. Um, and take very good care of yourself. Okay. Thank you. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.